Hi, I'm David Peskovitz. And I'm Mark Frauenfelder. And you're listening to For Future Reference, a podcast from the Institute for the Future. In every episode of For Future Reference, we talk with scientists and engineers whose forward-thinking research has the potential to transform our lives over the coming decade. For most inhabitants of the developed world, energy hasn't been a problem during their lifetimes. Energy is a technology so successful it's become invisible, the most significant and most silent enabler of a modern way of life. But all that is changing. Over the next 10 to 15 years, our relationship to energy will enter a new phase framed by the stark reality of carbon emission-driven climate change. Since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, atmospheric CO2 levels have increased by 43%. Last year alone, humans produced 39.8 billion tons of carbon dioxide. That's a big problem because this greenhouse gas is a major contributor to global warming. One of the most interesting proposals for dealing with CO2 emissions is to recycle them and convert them into useful fuels and chemicals. That's what Kendra Cool is doing. We have to put energy back into the system. She's the co-founder of Odin 12. They're a startup that's developing technology that efficiently makes products from waste CO2, literally turning trash into treasure. So, Kendra, can you tell us, just, you know, tell us your name, what you do, and where you do it? I'm Kendra Cool. Um, and I'm working on developing a technology to recycle carbon dioxide. And I'm doing that as co-founder and CTO of a startup, uh, Opus 12. And we do most of our research and development work at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab as part of an incubator program called Cyclotron Road that's located there. And so did this project um, and this company spin out of research that you did um, uh, at the university? Yeah, so I actually started working in this field as a graduate student at Stanford University. Um, I was getting my PhD and working with Tom Haramio and also another graduate student who's also a co-founder of Opus 12, Atasha Cave, uh, was working with me. And we were studying really what the fundamental properties of good catalysts for electrochemical carbon dioxide conversion are. And so we kind of got to the end of our PhD period and we learned a lot about the catalyst for this reaction. And we also knew a lot about just in the course of doing that work, we'd realized what some of the barriers are to really applying it out in the real world. And so we started Opus 12 to overcome some of those barriers so that we could actually deploy the technology. Amazing. Can you explain to us a little bit about, you know, what is a catalyst, you know, for those who don't remember from from high school chemistry? Um, and, you know, what what um, the the challenge or problem you were trying to solve with your research on catalysts. Right. So the catalyst is, well, in our case, it's a metal. Um, metal's the surface of a metal. And when molecules interact with that surface, it lowers the energy barrier that they would need to go through in order to be converted into those um, other products. And so it really... Um, it's a way that it speeds up reactions um, between different molecules, and it also changes, in our case, um, where the inputs of a reaction are just CO2, water, and electricity, um, there's a whole range of different products that we can make. And so the catalyst 
really determines which of those products um, actually comes out of the reaction. Can you tell us about the, the carbon dioxide waste stream? F- first of all, what is it and, and how big of a problem is it? Uh, so I think we all know when, you know, when we burn fossil fuels or other carbon-containing uh, materials, we're releasing carbon dioxide and we're getting out a bunch of energy that we use for a variety of purposes. And when we're releasing that carbon dioxide, um, most of it is going up in the air. And we've seen you know, an increase over the last 100 years in the concentration of carbon dioxide found in the atmosphere. And that has been linked to also to an increase in global temperatures. And so as the concentration of carbon dioxide goes up, the temperature goes up, that can cause a lot of environmental problems. And so that's, I mean, that's, I guess, the big problem that we're trying to solve is finding an alternative. Instead of releasing the carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, can we do something with it? Can we recycle it back into the products that we would find useful again um, so that we don't have to release it? What are some of the products um, that you imagine it could be uh, converted into? So in our research at Stanford, actually what we found is just right now, with our preliminary results, we can make 16 different compounds. And those are things that range from sort of everyday household products, like acetone that's found in nail polish remover, ethylene glycol that's a main component in antifreeze, um, ethylene, which is a precursor to most of the plastics that we use. Polyethylene is one of the most widely used plastics. Um, and all the way to fuels, so ethanol, um, which we is mixed with gasoline and burned in cars, and methane, which is the main component of natural gas used to heat many homes. Wow. So why aren't we doing this already? Why are we, uh, uh, you know, not using uh, this process already? And you know, without it, how do we how do we make those materials? Um, yeah. So I mean, I guess I talked a little bit about how when we burn fossil fuels. We release energy and we release carbon dioxide. If we want to recycle that carbon dioxide back into those higher value compounds, we also we have to put energy back into the system. It's difficult right now when we have all this free fossil energy, um, oil and natural gas, to think about using alternative energy sources instead. And that's really what we would need to do to make this process um, one that's carbon neutral or carbon negative. Right. So so the idea would be to use wind or solar at times when it's not uh, uh, peak, peak use for other purposes. Then you could use that energy to introduce into this system. I guess it's an artificial carbon cycle yeah. to convert CO2 back into useful chemicals and fuels. Right. So the the natural carbon cycle, um, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is absorbed by plants, which use the energy in sunlight to convert it into sugars. And then the plants use the sugar um, to power making other building blocks for the plant or just for their normal processes. Um, this is very similar, where we would take energy from an alternative source, wind or solar, Um, hydro, I mean, there's a whole range of different um, types of electricity that we could use. And we would put that into our system with carbon dioxide in order to recycle the carbon dioxide back into something that 
we as people would actually want to use. Um, and one of, we have seen this enormous growth in renewable electricity um, over the last decade, and I think that is expected to continue. Uh, but one of the issues with renewables is their intermittency. So when the sun is shining, you have a lot of electricity, but then a cloud comes or it's night, and you're no longer able to get any electrical power from that source. Um, same with wind. The wind's blowing, you get a lot of power, but then you could have a calm day and not generate as much electricity. And so there's times when we have way more electricity than we need, the sun's shining, the wind is blowing, and then there's times when we really don't have as much um, electricity as we need because it's cloudy and calm. And so this would be a technology that would allow us to really, when we're generating excess, excess electricity, um, take that electricity, put it into something useful, um, making recycling carbon dioxide back into these products, and then if there is a time when we need more electricity, we can convert some of those products like methane, uh, the fuels, back into electricity if we needed to do that. So it's like in a way you're storing solar and, and wind energy with these fuels. Yeah, I think that would be one uh, one way this technology could be used is as kind of long-term electrical storage. Amazing. Um, there's, there's a lot of electrical storage technologies. I think batteries are really good for sort of short-term storage. But if we need storage on the order of, of months, years, then really chemical fuels are a great way to go because they're easy to store and they're stable for an infinite period of time. That's amazing. Can you imagine a world where this kind of research and, and what your company is developing could ha, you know has the most impact and, and changes the way we live. What does that what does that world look like? Or how do we interact with that kind of technology or systems, you know, on a daily basis? I think we're already we're headed toward that world. Um, we're already recycling, you know, so many of our waste streams, plastics, metals, glass, um, not as much stuff is going into the landfill, and we're able to reuse these materials over and over. And I think carbon dioxide is kind of one of the final frontiers for us as far as that sort of recycling, um, where it's one of our biggest waste streams, but we could also, there are ways that we can reuse it and so that we don't have to release it into the atmosphere. Is there a way to, to like... What's the challenge in, in scaling this up and making it happen now? Is it is the technology there and it's just a, a matter of, of making it work on an industrial scale or is there something else involved? Um, so I think there's technological challenges and there's also sort of, I mean, market challenges at this point. Um, so in the technology... I mean, this is really a relatively new area, so we know that it's possible, but we haven't really explored um, how far we'll be able to go, how efficient we'll be able to make the process, how large of scale, um, things like that. And so that's really what we're focused on at Opus 12. Um, but there's also, I think, the economics right now. So by making the process as efficient and scalable as possible, we make it you know, easier economically um, in order for it to be adopted. but And I think there's there's lots of smaller markets where we can be really competitive already um, with the technology, 
but to really be at the very large scale, um, making, you know, liquid fuels and things like that. Um, I think there's some things that possibly have to change in the way that we, we think about how we incentivize um, using these renewable sources. What do you mean by that? Right now, it is so cheap, um, so inexpensive to, to use fossil energy that ultimately releases carbon dioxide into the air. Mm-hmm. And we're not really pricing any of the cost of that carbon dioxide pollution um, into the use of those fossil fuels. And so at some point, I think we'll need to think about having regulations or a price on carbon or some sort of scheme where we say, oh, we're not going to be able to release this stuff into the air indefinitely. Um, We need to incentivize the use of these other technologies to avoid um, carbon dioxide release. So what what would be the first product, you know, from your company? Is it a battery to store, you know, solar energy? Is it, uh, what What do you envision? What's the roadmap? Uh, I guess what we're going after first is some of the smaller chemicals markets mm-hmm. um, because you have much higher margins for chemicals than you do for fuels or for kind of energy. Um, it's also relatively cheap, which is, which is great, and we want that to continue. Um, but we need to be cost competitive with the technology. And so we're looking at, yeah, the higher margin chemicals market. And we have some advantages with the technology. Not only is it green, uh, but by taking carbon dioxide, we have such simple building blocks, just carbon dioxide, water, and electricity, that those are found almost anywhere. And so we can, you know, get those building blocks on site, put them into our reactor, and then depending on the catalyst that's present in the reactor, make, you know, the desired chemical um, on site for the customer. And so it avoids a lot of the delivery and supply chain costs that currently exist in the market for some of these smaller volume chemicals. And so that's really where we see an opportunity to <clears throat> to deploy this technology initially and then hopefully, you know, scale from there um, after having proven it out at that for the smaller scale, um, scale up and be able to do even fuels. Do you think that, I mean, obviously it's it's appealing that it's a green technology to produce um, these chemicals, but what do you think the appeal would be for a manufacturer or for potential customers that would attract them to, to this technology or this method of manufacturing as opposed to, you know, the traditional methods? Um, I mean, there there is obviously the green component, but I also think um, customers want to be in charge of their supply chain. Mm-hmm. And when you order something and it doesn't come because of other delays or things like that, that can like shut down a business um, and waste a lot of money while you don't have the necessary materials. And so this would be a way to give customers the ability to make the compounds that they need themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're no longer relying on outside businesses to bring them materials. Uh, also, there's there's also kind of a, a safety element to it. So storing a bunch of chemicals at your site is not the safest thing. A lot of these materials are flammable or toxic. And so if you can make them as you need them, you avoid a lot of the safety issues that come with having to store a large volume. Um, and so that's also you know, an attractive 
to these businesses. That's really cool. Uh, Kendra, just going backwards a little bit, could you describe what was the breakthrough um, in your discovery of this catalytic reaction? So I guess as a, when I started working on this as a graduate student back in 2008, there had been a lot of work that had been done earlier in you know, the kind of the 80s following the 1970s oil crisis. But then it had really been a field that had gone out of favor and not a lot of people had examined um, catalysts or this type of technology in the intervening time. And so we really found that we had to sort of reinvent the wheel of how to study these materials and how to think about this reaction um, from a scientific standpoint. And so we ended up having to build, build kind of our own um, new reactor to study the products and the energy efficiency of the different catalysts. And I think in doing that was extremely helpful learning experience for me in really getting a deep appreciation for not just the fundamental science in the catalysis part of it, but also in how important the reactor design was and how making a scalable reactor um, could really allow this technology to move forward into the marketplace. Wow. And so um, what's your timeline? You know, when do you think we're going to see the, you know, you've been working on this, you said, as a graduate student, and now you've spun out a company, um, and you're going to bring this to, to market. What's your timeline look like? Uh, so it's fall of 2017. We're looking to have built our first kind of commercial um, device that will take kind of kilogram level of CO2 and convert it into, into chemicals um, for customers. And then that would be for sale in, you know, kind of early 2018. And then from there, continue to scale up um, to make larger and larger volumes. Last question I wanted to ask you is, what inspired you to, to pursue this line of research, and what is it that inspires you or motivates you to, to keep going with it? Um, I mean, I think a lot of it goes back to, you know, my childhood. Um, I grew up in Montana and in a family that was really into being outside, hiking, um, climbing mountains. I was near Glacier National Park, um, which is sort of is famous for its glaciers, but also famous um, for those glaciers melting. And so that was something I was very aware of sort of the, the challenges um, of climate change and the effect that it was having on the environment, you know, before my eyes, really, as I was growing up. And I thought a lot in high school, you know, what do I want to do? You know, what can I do to really help our environment and um, think about how can we can live more sustainably in the world. And I took, you know, chemistry class in high school and I just loved thinking about new ways to put molecules together and new, new kind of sources for the chemicals and materials um, that we use every day that, that aren't just from, you know, oil and gas that we have, we have biomass, we have all this alternative material um, that we can use that doesn't emit CO2. And I, when I went to college, um, you know, continued studying chemistry, thinking, oh, someday I want to do, you know, some aspect of green chemistry. And then when I got to graduate school, um, really looked hard for a lab that was doing something in sustainable chemistry and was lucky enough to find um, the project that I ended up working on, which is the CO2 recycling. 
um, there. And so that was really, you know, my, my path, I guess, through all of these things. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kendra. That was, was really interesting. Absolutely. And I can't wait to uh, someday uh, uh, see a reactor, you know, on the roof of every, every business. Yeah. Hopefully soon. Mark, you know, the first thing that, that really struck me um, when I was learning about Kendra's work and especially talking with her is that, you know, essentially there's this green side of what she's doing, but it's also about, um, you know, the supply chain and, and putting the manufacturing of these chemicals um, actually on site where, where they're needed. Yeah, uh, which is really interesting. So cool. It's such a great idea. And like she said, I mean, the raw materials are CO2, power, and water. So that's like available. Everywhere. Yeah, exactly. That's like one cool thing about it. The other cool thing is the fact that you're taking something that's considered like really bad for the environment and turning it into something that's useful. Yeah, that's this a positive. Is- you're talking about these chemicals that people would be pretty squicked out about um, from an environmental perspective, I think. But being able to produce them from waste and waste that's uh, uh, having an impact on, on on global warming is pretty pretty astounding. Yeah, and I think the, the challenge is to create a kind of a closed system. If a company is going to be using this reactor to capture the carbon dioxide they produce to make fuel and chemicals, then I would like to see them use those fuels and chemicals on their own site and recapture the carbon dioxide as it's being emitted rather than just like taking those products and selling them to some other place that's going to burn them and use them and re-release the carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. The trick is to keep this in a, in a loop. Absolutely, and I think there's probably also an opportunity um, for these chemicals or for, you know, to become almost an uh, underutilized asset um, to further encourage companies to, to employ this process because anything that's left over, um, they could probably market. It's similar to, to people putting solar panels on their roof and, and you know, whatever's left over, uh, they end up selling back into the grid. For sure. And I think this is where government can play a positive role is these fuels and chemicals probably will be a little more expensive than at first being able to buy them on the market. But with the right kind of incentives, it could definitely become competitive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think her work is really one of those examples of, of, you know, hopefully of doing well by doing good. I love it. Thanks for listening to For Future Reference. I'm David Peskovitz. And I'm Mark Frauenfelder. For more information about Institute for the Future and to subscribe to the For Future Reference podcast, visit iftf.org. For Future Reference is underwritten by a grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation with production support from Parker Yesco and BMP Audio. Greg Fleischett composed the music.